Uh, let's start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful Lord's Day that you have made. Uh, we thank you so much for the body of Christ, the way you've designed it, that you've brought together people from all walks of life, from every tribe and tongue and language of nation, and forged us into a family. Uh, we thank you so much that we have brothers and sisters wherever we go, and especially that we have these brothers and sisters here at Hope Bible Church to be our family. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done in history. We thank you that you're sovereign over every second of history from the beginning to the end. We thank you that you loved us enough to form your great plan of redemption before the foundation of the earth, and that you sent your one and only Son to die on the cross for our sins, and that you raised him from the dead so that we serve a living Savior. What a wonderful thing it is, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, one or two things before we get started. So this is the third and final quarter, third and final quarter of our study of the book of Revelation. So uh, we did 13 parts in the first quarter and 13 parts in the second quarter. So we've been through 26 parts, and that makes this part number 27 out of 39 in our study of the book of Revelation. So I have, from time to time, uh, purchased these uh, in the past. And so this is a timeline of the entire book of Revelation. And it also goes through the basics of the four different interpretation schemes that are out there for the book of Revelation in a pull-out form. It's, uh, it's a nice kind of handy reference. And so if you haven't gotten one of these, especially for those that are perhaps new for this quarter. I don't know if there's anybody in that category. Uh, but if you haven't gotten one of these before, please take one. Um, and then if, if you have a need for additional ones, even though you've had one before, uh, feel free to take one as well. So part 27, uh, oh, before I start into that, let me talk about this, uh, this movie. So, uh, of course, most of the stuff that comes to movie theaters, garbage, um, everybody knows that. Uh, every once in a while, there's a good movie, but most of them are just flat-out garbage. And, but this one is a movie specifically um, um, and openly about the Bible, and about some specific things about the Bible. Um, it, the primary focus is the flood, but they talk about the flood as pointing forward, the judgment of the flood pointing forward to the judgment in the end times, which is exactly what the Apostle Peter does when he, when he talks about the second coming, he compares it to the flood. Jesus does the same thing in the Olivet Discourse, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man, coming of the Son of Man. Um, and so they do that explicitly in this film. And it's coming to theaters two nights, Wednesday and Thursday, March 20th and 21st, one showing each night, 7 p.m. only, in all the theaters. So one showing for two different nights, so a total of two showings in many, many theaters. And so if you go to noahsflood.com, 
noahsflood.com, you can buy tickets and it'll show you what theaters it's playing in. It's playing in the AMC 14 Columbia at the Columbia Mall. That's where I got my tickets. It's also at the Egypt 24, whatever it is, the Arundel Mills Mall. It's in a bunch of theaters around here. Um, and so if you'd like to go, I recommend it, especially because it talks about end times, the flood and the end times, just like Peter and Jesus did. And it's um, one of the focuses of the film also is to show that uh, modern science confirms that there was a worldwide flood. Modern science confirms that there was a worldwide flood. And so they have some very high level scientific experts that were consultants on the film to make it, to make it uh, kind of scientifically realistic. And in that, that list of people, um, many of them are people that I know, either directly or by reputation. Um, and they're excellent. They're excellent, devout followers of Christ and high level scientists at the same time. Um, so I recommend this movie. Um, I, I, we're going as a small group. If you want to get together as a small group, that's a that's a good idea too. Yes, Larry. It's sort of like a documentary. It's more like documentary style. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Getting together as a small group would be a good idea, I think. All right. So here we are, part twenty-seven: the triumphant saints and angelic messengers. We're going to see in the first half of chapter fourteen. Uh, this part of this interlude, 12, chapter 12 to chapter 14, is an interlude between the sounding of the seventh trumpet in chapter 11 and the effects of the seventh trumpet, which start out in chapter 15. So we're in, in, in an interlude. Uh, so today we'll talk about the triumphant saints. We'll talk about their power, their praise, their purity, their partisanship, their purpose, their precision, and their perfection. And then we'll talk about some angelic messengers, a first angel who preaches the gospel, a second angel who pronounces judgment, and a third angel who promises damnation. So, three angels. But first, let's take a look at where we were last week. So last week we did the, the second half of chapter 13, and that was the false prophet. Uh, so... Uh, John sees a second beast, so remember before that we had seen a first beast. Now there's a second beast. The first beast came out of the sea, the second beast comes out of the um, earth. Uh, the first beast is described um, uh, as a leopard, a bear, a lion, a ferocious beast, and the second beast is described as like a lamb. Uh, but he speaks like a dragon. So he speaks with Satan's words, this false prophet. Uh, he exercises the authority of the first beast. So remember, the dragon had given his authority to the first beast, the Antichrist. And the Antichrist gives his authority to the second beast, the false prophet. So it's all coming from Satan. Um, and it, they deceive the whole earth. And those who dwell on, in the earth uh, will end up worshiping the first beast, the Antichrist, because of what the false prophet says. So the false prophet will um, lead people to worship the Antichrist. He's, he will lead the worldwide cult of Antichrist worship. Um, and 
part of his talking points will be this apparent resurrection of the first beast. So the first beast had a wound that appeared to be fatal and came back to life. And so uh, th this, uh, this false prophet has his ready-made talking point. Hey, look at this. Who's like the beast that can overcome death like that? Uh, also, the false prophet performs signs of his own, uh, even to calling down fire from heaven, which is exactly what the two witnesses did. And so, uh, as we've seen throughout Scripture, Satan tries to imitate God. He's a, uh, he's a cheap knockoff. So, uh, the two witnesses call down fire from heaven, so Satan gives his uh, false prophet the, the ability to call down fire from heaven. Um, so, everybody's fooled by this, and there's a, uh, everybody that's an unbeliever is fooled by this. They also set up an image of the beast, and everybody has to worship the image of the beast, and it's the death penalty if you don't worship the image of the beast. And um, through some sort of sleight of hand or, or trick, trickery, the image of the beast seems to sp even speak. Uh, could be some sort of like modern um, special effects or technology like we have now. Uh, as part of this whole uh, plan of, uh, of Antichrist worship, uh, everybody has to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. Um, and so in addition to the death threats for not worshiping the Antichrist, if you refuse to get this mark on your forehead or hand, you won't be able to buy or sell. Um, and so um, it's very dire circumstances for anybody who refuses this command to worship the Antichrist. And so um, we see kind of glimpses of this sometimes in uh, totalitarian governments that we've seen through history, and even now, nowadays, we see glimpses of this, but this will be a worldwide system and complete control of people. Uh, the, the, the mark is described as either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And, of course, this has led to massive speculation throughout history. What is the, who is the 666? And it's been identified as various popes or, or emperors uh, throughout history. Uh, but all of those have been wrong because none of this has happened yet. This is uh, yet future. Uh, so this passage is not intended to be a source of fruitless speculation about its details. Rather, it stands as a warning to the unbelieving world. That's what it's uh, supposed to function function as, and also a motivation to those of us who are in Christ to evangelize the lost so that they can avoid this fate. So, um, any questions about where we were last week before we launch into this week? All right, very good. We have lots to cover today. We have triumphant saints and angelic messengers. And so uh, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Uh, so open your Bible or your device to Revelation 14, starting with the beginning. Okay. Revelation 14, 1 to 11. This is the word of the Lord. Then I looked, and behold... The Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder, and the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. 
and no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That's the word of the Lord. So, um, so some, some terrifying warnings. Some, some wonderful, um, joyous um, celebration and some stern warnings we have in this passage. So as usual, I'll start with uh, a few paragraphs from John MacArthur. Uh, As he introduces this passage of Scripture, he says this, Our society loves winners. Whether in politics, business, entertainment, sports, or war, we idolize those who succeed. On the other hand, we do not tolerate losers. Coaches who are lose are fired, players who lose are traded, executives who fail are replaced, politicians who fail are voted out of office. Our heroes are those who overcome all obstacles and triumph in the end. The opening verses of Revelation 14 introduce the most triumphant group of men the world will ever know. Scripture describes other faithful, godly, uncompromising, committed men such as Joseph, Daniel, and Paul, but never will there be such a large group at one time. They will emerge from the worst holocaust in history, the tribulation, battle-weary, but triumphant. They will be like 144,000 Daniels. In light of that horrifying, unimaginable situation and the devastating trumpet and bowl judgments to follow, it will seem impossible for anyone to survive. It is against that backdrop that the 144,000 are introduced. They will survive both Satan's wrath and persecution and God's judgments on the sinful world. Nothing will be able to harm them because God will seal them. The 144,000 will not be the only ones redeemed during the tribulation. A great host of others, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved. But the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are unique because all of them will survive. When Christ returns and stands on Mount Zion, they will stand with him in triumph. 
A brief overview sets the stage for the vision of the 144,000. The reader should recall that chapters 12 to 14 of Revelation form an interlude in the saga of God's final judgments on the sinful world. The unfolding of those judgments is described in chapters 6 to 11, as God will begin to take back the earth from the usurper Satan. Chapter 11, verse 15 records the sounding of the seventh trumpet, though the judgments associated with it will not begin to unfold until chapter 15. Chapters 12 and 13 recapitulate the events of the tribulation, this time giving them from Satan's perspective. They expose Satan's efforts to destroy Israel, chapter 12, and detail the careers of Antichrist and the final prophet in chapter 13. Chapter 14 refers, refer, returns to what God is doing. It contains three visions that give a general preview of the judgments yet to come that culminate in Christ's return. The first vision was of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will appear with the Lord Jesus Christ on Mount Zion at his second coming. And then in verse before us in verse uh, 6 through 11 is the record of the second vision in which the judgment is proclaimed by three angelic messengers. Angels will play a major role in the end times events. They will gather the non-elect for judgment, the elect for glory, and accompany the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to earth in triumph. In Revelation, angels are involved in the outpouring of God's wrath. Unlike those angels, however, the three angels described in verses 6 to 11 do not bring judgment. Instead, they bring astounding proclamations from God concerning the consummation of the age. The three angels do not appear in sequential or chronological order. Instead, they address issues and events stretch that stretch across the tribulation period. Their messages anticipate the judgment of the seventh trumpet, which includes the final climactic rapid-fire bold judgments at the end of the tribulation. The messages they bring are designed to produce a remedial fear, leading to saving faith. God will graciously offer sinners another opportunity to repent before unleashing the terrifying bold judgments. The first angel preaches the gospel, the second pronounces judgment, and the third promises damnation. So that's uh, MacArthur's little introduction to this uh, section of Scripture. Um, and as he mentioned, this is so we're still in the interlude. So there's a series of visions that John has from chapter 12 all the way through the end of 14. Uh, so we've got one more after today. So next week's the, the final one of those uh, visions in the interlude. Uh, but here we are in 14 to talk about these triumphant saints. And so uh, let's look at this verse by verse and see how it goes. Uh, then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. So the phrase, I looked and behold, or its equivalent, appears over and over again in Revelation. Uh, to introduce something new something and something dramatic, something, a dramatic vision that John's about to describe. He starts with, then I looked and behold. Uh, we see that in chapter 4 and chapter 6, uh, several times in chapter 6, in chapter 7, in chapter, we'll see it yet in chapter 15 and chapter 19, uh, this phrase, then I looked and behold. Uh, and so what was it that he was beholding that was uh, grabbing his attention? It was the awe-inspiring sight of the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. And so this is a monumental moment in redemptive history. 
Uh, this is Jesus coming again. This is the second coming, uh, which is described in detail in chapter 20. We're getting a, a, a foreshadow of it, a foreviewing of it here in chapter 14 of these actual events that are described in chapter 20. Uh, so Psalm 48 describes Mount Zion as beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, the city of the great king. And so throughout the Old Testament, Mount Zion is not just a physical mountain. It, it also is, a, is a, uh, a universal description for the city of Jerusalem, sometimes for the Temple Mount, uh, but it's more general than just a geologic feature. Uh, it's important to recognize that from old, the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah wrote that the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem is um, Hebrew parallelism. It's describing the same thing in two different words or phrases. Uh, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, it's describing the same thing in, in different phrases, Hebrew parallelism. And so uh, when we see Mount Zion, it is... Um, in this instance, it's Jesus coming back to Jerusalem and standing there in Jerusalem. Uh, the psalmist wrote of this mountain in Psalm 2.6, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so where is the king going to be? Is he going to stay on a mountain? Or is he going to be on a throne in Jerusalem? He's going to be on a throne in Jerusalem. Not just on a mountain, but figuratively, it's Mount Zion, and that's what John sees. John sees in his vision Jesus standing on Mount Zion. And so what does that uh, vision mean? It means Jesus coming back in his second coming to Jerusalem. Um, now, I want to give one more, um, uh, one more uh, extended quote from John MacArthur at this point. Because there's some controversy over what this vision is talking about. And I think it's important to set this in our minds, exactly what it's talking about, before we go any further. Um, and so MacArthur describes it like this. Strangely, some equate this passage with Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, and view it as a vision of heaven. But the former passage describes the heavenly Mount Zion, the abode of God. This passage describes the return of Christ to the earthly Mount Zion. The whole point would be lost if Mount Zion refers to heaven, because that would mean that 144,000 had died. In that case, their sealing with the mark in chapter 7 would be rendered meaningless. God said he sealed them with the mark so that no harm would come to them. But in fact, if they were dead and in heaven, harm would have come to them. Um, and so that would contradict. That would, that would mean Scripture was contradicting Scripture, and that doesn't happen. And so that, this is not a vision of heaven. It's a vision of earth, the earthly Mount Zion. Um, Isaiah 11, uh, 9-12, and 24-23, and Joel chapter 2, and Zechariah chapter 14 also support the identification of the Mount Zion in this passage with the earthly Mount Zion. And also we have in verse 2 a voice coming from heaven. If we were already in heaven, why would we describe a voice that we heard already in heaven as coming from heaven? That would make no sense. 
And so this is, the vision is uh, that John sees is the earthly Mount Zion with Jesus on it. He's looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Uh, some commentators insist that the number 144,000 is not to be taken literally. They argue that it symbolizes the church or the tribulation saints or history's most outstanding Christians gathered together in heaven for this scene. Some cults even insist that it refers to them. Uh, that's uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses say that it's just them. They're they're hundred, and so. Um, uh, but uh, which poses a problem for ones with more than 144,000 adherents. Um, but all such speculative personal alteration of scripture is pointless. Their identity is not in doubt. This is a group of 144,000 real live people, 12,000 Jewish believers from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that we had described in detail in Revelation chapter 7. And so uh, that's what MacArthur, uh, he, he wants to be really emphatic about that because it, uh, it sets unless you get that detail right this vision doesn't make any sense um, and so that's what we're seeing here we're seeing Jesus, he, that's what John is seeing in his vision, Jesus standing on Mount Zion in Jerusalem uh, and the 144,000 around him because they've lived all the way through the tribulation and there they are with him when he comes for the second time, uh, his second coming and it's really described in detail in chapter 20, yes he does, but that's why I made the point that this is the whole, that what John is seeing, it, do, so let me just back up. Do we believe that he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and never move for a thousand years? No, so he won't do that. He, uh, when he t- comes and touches down, yes, he will definitely touch down on the Mount of Olives, but he won't stay there. Right? He's going he's to reign in Jerusalem um, on David's throne, um, which most likely is near the Temple Mount. Um, but Mount Zion throughout the Old Testament is a symbol for, really, for all of Jerusalem. That whole area. And so Jesus, so what John is seeing is the fact that Jesus has come back to Jerusalem. And it, well, it certainly is true that when he, when he touches down, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. But he will not just stand on the Mount of Olives for a thousand years during the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, he, he'll be my guess is he'd be all around Jerusalem uh, during his millennial kingdom. Yes, it will split when he comes down. That's right. He, he comes down to the Mount of Olives and, he, and it splits uh, as he comes down and puts his feet on it. And so it, you can get wrapped up into, into details when you look at uh, you can look at a map and you can see where Mount of Olives is. You can see where, uh, where, where the about three or four different speculations about what Mount Zion is, either the eastern slope or the western slope or the Temple Mount. But I think the most important thing is when we look at references to Mount Zion in the Old Testament, it it refers more generally to Jerusalem. And so I think that's what John is seeing in his vision. He's seeing Jesus on Mount Zion, but what, what does that mean? That means that Jesus has come back his second coming has happened, and he's in Jerusalem. And that's where he sees him, and that's where the 144,000 are. Uh, so, uh, the text also describes the 144,000 as having his, the Lamb's name, and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And so, this is a parallel. So, the unbelievers have the mark of the beast, the 144,000 have the mark of the Lamb, and of his Father 
on their foreheads. Uh, he placed it there, we saw in, in chapter 7, for their protection. Uh, Satan and the unbelieving world were, will desperately seek to kill these powerful, fearless preachers of the gospel. But having marked them as his own possession, God will not permit them to be harmed. Throughout the outpouring of God's final judgments and Satan's final fury, they will preach the gospel. They will confront unbelievers with their sins, call them to repentance and faith in the Savior, and proclaim that the catastrophes taking place are God's righteous judgments. And despite Satan's best efforts, all the 144,000 will survive to meet Christ on Mount Zion at the second coming. And so that's what John's seeing. So this interlude here is describing many things. Uh, it goes back through the whole tribulation. Uh, we saw that in chapter 13. We went all the way back to the beginning. Of and, and we also actually saw uh, going all the way back to Christ's earthly ministry with the dragon trying to, to kill the child of the woman. Um, so, we saw, we've seen a recapitulation of many, many events in these chapters 12 to 14. And this particular one is looking all the way forward to chapter 20 when Christ comes again. And all the 144,000 are there to meet him when he comes back. Uh, God will protect his own and bring them triumphantly through their trials. That is true both of survivors on earth, like the 144,000, and of martyrs in heaven, like those depicted in previous chapters. Jesus promised, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Believers are eternally secure, Jesus declared, because no one will snatch them out of my hand. And so, all believers are protected spiritually. But the 144,000 have something different than everybody else has. And so um, some, some people argue that the protection for the 144,000 is only spiritual. But that would make no sense because every single believer is protected spiritually like that. Nobody can snatch any, any believer out of Christ's hand. Everybody's absolutely, absolutely guaranteed. Your salvation is guaranteed. There's no way to snatch them out of your hand for every single believer. So it has to be something different about these 144,000. It's not just the same as every believer. It's the physical protection that's different about these believers. Okay. Uh, yes, go ahead. Will the 144,000 be worldwide evangelists or just kind of? So it's a good question. Uh, there's no specifics about it. Uh, however, uh, remember that uh, what, what, what do we have that they did not have in those days? What, what makes it possible for somebody that never leaves one spot to talk to everybody in the world? Where it, it, the internet, the internet, the t satellite TV, um, yeah, yeah who, who, social media, and who knows what will be invented by the time these events happen. Um, so they could very well never leave Jerusalem or its surrounding areas and still evangelize people all over the world. Um, it, which was something totally unimaginable at the time this was written, but is now not only imaginable, but quite simple. For, I mean, anybody can set up a YouTube channel and talk to everybody on the whole planet. Um, yeah. Yes, uh, sorry. Okay, yes, go ahead. Does it also mean they're free from trial so it, it's not. So I wouldn't say that they're uh, that this guarantee that anything in here guarantees that they won't have 
difficulties, trials, uh, persecutions, but they're protected from them in some miraculous supernatural way that not everybody else is because we see martyrs coming out of the Great Tribulation, but these all, 144,000 of them, are going to survive to, to meet Christ in person there uh, in Jerusalem when he comes back. Uh, there were more hands. I'm sorry. Let me uh, let me not skip over anybody. Who else had a hand up? Yes, sir. They will have some trial because they won't have the mark, so being able to buy or sell, sell yep. the involve themselves in commerce yep. will be a trial. Yep, and how, how they're fed is unknown. Uh, it could be something like uh, the birds bringing food to Elijah, or uh, you know, it could be anything. It could be manna falling down from heaven, for all we know, just on these 144,000. Uh, but somehow, some way, God's going to protect them, even through things like that, like um, like the death penalty for not worshiping the image of the beast, and, and like uh, not being able to buy or sell or trade from not having the mark of the beast. Uh, who, there were other hands. I saw so, I saw another hand somewhere. No. Yeah, so that's a good point. We, we haven't quite got there yet, but we'll talk about that later on in this lesson. This, the fact that this angel is proclaiming the gospel. And I, I think uh, it's a reasonable assumption to make that this angel is speaking so that everybody on earth can understand. So every language, uh, certainly God understands every language, um, and he, he's this this angel is making this proclamation, and my guess that it's it's not just in English. Uh, so it's it's yeah yeah. So it's prob most likely this the angel is speaking all the language of the earth so everybody can understand, similar to how uh, the apostles in Acts chapter two were able to speak and everybody could understand them. Uh, God did that kind of miraculous work before. Uh, he can do that kind of miraculous work again. Uh, but it's a, it's an excellent question and it's a good thing to ponder, uh, especially between now and then what are we doing to be able to translate the Bible into these languages that don't yet have it and there are people who have been given the, the holy fire from the Holy Spirit to do that work um, and they, they dedicate their lives to it and, and you can read stories about them there's excellent stories available about people who have dedicated their entire lives spent like 40 or 50 years just to translate one of these languages just to, like, to translate the New Testament into one of these uh, languages that have never had it before Yeah. although uh, we'll, we'll talk about Romans 1 and, and Romans 1 is, is, is starkly unequivocal that people know the God of the Bible from what was made. They know the God of the Bible from what was made. Now, that doesn't mean they know the details of the gospel. It means that they know the God of the Bible from what was made. Uh, that whole passage in Romans 1, it uses the Greek phrase, nantes tan theon, knowing the God. Not, it, 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 most English translations say knowing God. And it can, you can slide by and say, well, knowing God, what does that mean? They know some vague concept of, 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 uh, of, you know, of deity. But no, it's, it's the, the article is there in the Greek, not just Tantheon, knowing the God. 
Uh, yeah, and we'll talk about that uh, when we talk about the first angel as well. Um, so knowing that they are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, believers may live confidently and minister boldly. And that's what these 144,000 do. Um, yes. So uh, on to verse 2. Uh, so we've, so far we've covered verse 1. So our pace... <laughs> Our pace is a little slow so far, but we'll try to pick it up a little bit. Uh, verse, Continuing to verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. So standing on with the Lamb on Mount Zion, 144,000, they hear there's a voice. That John, okay, the vision here is on earth, and so he hears a voice from heaven. Um, and the 144,000 we'll see are going to kind of join in on this thing. Uh, with all the devastation they've seen, with all the rejection, hostility, hatred, and persecution they have endured, one might expect them to be too sorrowful to sing, yet they will joyously praise the Lord for their protection and triumph. Uh, this is not the first time John heard a voice from heaven. We saw that in verse in chapter 4, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12. We hear a voice from heaven. Uh, nor will it be the last. We'll hear it again in chapter 18, chapter 19. And the voice that he hears this time is very loud and continuous, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. So it's a tremendous sound he hears coming from heaven. Um, we hear, we've, we've had this same imagery in the Old Testament. John uses Old Testament imagery all the time in these visions. Ezekiel 43 likens the voice of God to the sound of many waters. We saw in, in Revelation chapter 1 the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ described as many waters. Uh, but in Revelation 19.6 we'll see that both of those phrases describe the voice of a heavenly multitude. And so that's probably what this is, is a heavenly multitude um, making this very loud sound from heaven heaven that comes down to earth. Um, the mighty voice were not mere noise. It had a musical quality like the sound of harpists playing their harps. Uh, references to harps and harpists suggest that the voice expressed not judgment but joy. Uh, harps are frequently associated in the Old Testament with joyous praise. Many references to harps being joyous praise, accompanying joyous praise. So what we see here is heaven resounding with loud praise when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to establish his earthly kingdom. So that's what John's seeing. He's seeing Christ returns to re establish his millennial kingdom and this thunderous joy and praise coming from heaven accompanying that event. Um, the new song sung in heaven and it's described as before the throne and before the four living creatures. And so uh, the song is not coming from the four living creatures and it's not coming from the throne. The song is before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. Um, and so that uh, suggests a heavenly host. The heavenly host is singing uh, this song, making this joyous celebration. Um, so it, it seems like what we're, we're seeing here, what, we, what John is describing is angels joining with Old Testament saints and raptured church and redeemed tribulation martyrs to praise God for his salvation. So it's praise. Um, angels don't experience redemption, of course, uh, but they do rejoice because of it. We saw that in Luke chapter 15. And so all heaven will overflow with praise because of God's redemptive work culminating in the return of Christ, which we see here. 
uh, and no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. And so John notes a peculiar fact here about who can and cannot learn this song or sing this song. Um, it doesn't actually say that the 144,000 sing it here. It says that no one but them can learn it, interestingly enough. Uh, they may be singing it, but, they're learn but, but the scripture actually just says that they learn it. Um, the unregenerate, of course, cannot sing the song or learn the song. It's only for those redeemed. It says purchased here by the blood of Christ, of course. Uh, why the song is restricted to the 144,000 is not stated here. Uh, but Henry Morris has offered a possible explanation. Uh, this is a commentary called the Revelation Record by a man named uh, Dr. Henry Morris. He wrote, although the words of the song of the 144,000 are not recorded, it surely dwells in part, at least, on the great truth that they have been redeemed from the earth. Although in one sense all saved people have been redeemed from the earth, these could know the meaning of such a theme in a more profound way than others. They had been saved after the rapture. Remember, the church is raptured. And so these 144,000, in order to still be on the earth, had to be not saved at the time of the rapture. Saved after that. So they're saved after the rapture. At that time in history, when man's greatest persecutions and God's greatest judgments were on the earth. It was at such a time that they, like Noah in chapter 6, had found grace in the eyes of the Lord and had been separated from all that dwell on the earth. Not only had they been redeemed spiritually, but precursively, as it were, they had been redeemed from the very curse on the earth, being protected from pain and death by the guarding seal. And so we have all the way at the beginning um, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the earth cursed, and we have the introduction with sin came death and pain and suffering and all these things, and these 144,000 are protected from that, it's essentially protected from the effects of the curse. Uh, beforehand, before the curse is completely lifted from the earth when the new we have the new heavens and the new earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, of course, there's no, no more death, no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering. All those things are completely taken away in the new heavens and the new earth. But there is a partial kind of... Uh, um, institution of that for these 144,000 uh, ahead of time. That's Morris's point here. And so they, Morris says, would understand this song of redemption better than anyone uh, up all the way up to that point. Yes? So I think the remnant is the one-third, and so it's more than just this 144,000. So uh, we get from Zechariah 14 that uh, two-thirds of the Jews will be killed, one-third will be saved, and so I think it's more. that's more than the 144,000. Okay, um, these are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Uh, so even in the current grossly immoral day, so our day is pretty bad, uh, we can hardly imagine what the deviant sexual perversion of the tribulation will be like. We've got a preview with what, the, what we see in the, in the news today. Um, but for Second Thessalonians 2 says that divine restraint will be removed. So uh, as much as things have gone wrong these days, uh, it, people are not as evil as they could be because of divine restraint. Well, according to Second Thessalonians 2, that's going to be removed here in the last days uh, during this tribulation. And the unbelieving world will be abandoned by God, uh, judgmentally abandoned by God, as we see in Romans chapter 1. And sin will inundate the world like a flood. 
Um, so, and of course, fanning this, the flames of wickedness are Satan and his demon host uh, that have been released, uh, cast down with him from heaven and led up from the abyss. Um, and so there's demons running wild everywhere. And so things are much worse in these days than we see today with things like sexual immorality. Uh, so in the midst of all that darkness, the 144,000 shine forth as beacons of purity. Uh, despite rampant sexual sin that surrounds them, they will not be defiled with women, but will keep themselves chaste. Um, that, the, the, that the specific sin that they will avoid involves women indicates that sexual purity is in view here, not merely detachment from the corrupt world system. There's a focus on uh, a particular brand of uh, immorality here. Um, now, the passage does not necessarily teach that they will be unmarried, since sex within the marriage uh, within marriage does not defile anyone. So, notice that these are those who have not been defiled with women. And then there's a dependent clause after that, for they have kept themselves chaste, that describes not being defiled with women. Uh, nowhere in Scripture does God describe the marriage relationship as being defiled with women. Um, that does not describe the marriage relationship. Um, so it's possible that they're all unmarried, but not necessary from what the Scripture says that they be all unmarried. Now, uh, confusion has arisen about this because one of the possible translations of the Greek word that's, um, that's translated here, chaste, is virgin. Um, that Greek word is translated in other places virgin. It's got kind of a broader meaning than the English word virgin. But several of the English translations translate that word that's, that you see chaste here in the NASB as virgin. And that has a different meaning in English than the word chaste. Uh, I looked up chaste in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, and it definitely covers uh, sexual purity within marriage. The, English, the definition of the English word chaste includes sexual purity within a marriage relationship. Uh, but the word virgin does not. Uh, it does not. Um, and so it, it matters exactly how you translate that. But the Greek word actually allows for this translation chaste, and that's why the NASB people put it that way, I think. Uh, because the scripture does not man this scripture does not mandate that these people be unmarried. Um, because married does not equal defiled with women. Um, that's Platonic dualism uh, that's deep into the Western conscious mind, uh, Platonic dualism. Platonic dualism says everything about the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good. Um, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Um, but Platonic dualism is deep into the subconscious of uh, many in our culture. Um, what it means is that they will stand apart from the sin of their culture, particularly sexual sin. 144,000 morally, morally pure preachers amid the defilement that surrounds them. Uh, sexual purity is essential to triumphant Christian living. Paul wrote plainly, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, the apostle also admonished Timothy to flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy chapter 2. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote, The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
That's talking about sexual immorality there in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so the Bible is really clear about that, uh, this particular issue. And I think that's why uh, that's the particular issue that uh, John brings out, the, 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 um, the characteristic of these 144,000. Because of what Scripture has said up to this point about the emphasis on the fact that uh, those who are committed to the, to the Lord will, will not do uh, this kind of live in this kind of way. Those who would serve God effectively must lead holy, pure lives. Yep, that's Hebrews 13, 4. Uh, the, the marriage bed is undefiled. And so this, this, this Scripture does not say that they have to be unmarried. And, but you'll see that in many commentaries, and you'll see people just assume that this means that they're unmarried. But God never describes marriage as being defiled with women. What a, what a way to think of your, your marriage. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, not, that's not scriptural. Okay, um, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. So the 144,000 are further characterized as the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They will be partisans to the party of the Lamb. So the triumphant 144,000 will be completely loyal to Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. So this is in contrast to all these people all over the world that are following the Antichrist. The 144,000 are committed to Christ no matter what happens. Um, such loyal, devoted followers is exactly what Jesus seeks. In Matthew 16, he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does take up your cross mean? It, to the, in the times that Jesus was saying that, uh, a, a condemned person had to carry his own cross, just like Jesus ended up doing. And so, what kind of commitment does, it, does Jesus look for? People who are willing to go to all the way to death, to uh, brutal execution for his sake, for following him. Uh, he advises the rich young ruler, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So give every, be, be willing to set me above everything else, your possessions, your, your very life. Jesus taught that in his earthly ministry, and so these 144,000 live that out. Uh, Jesus told the unbelieving Jews that they were not his sheep noting that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And that's what the 144,000 do. Uh, they follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Um, so just like Jesus uh, said that His followers would do. These have been purchased from among men as the first fruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth, and they are blameless. In the redemptive language, reminiscent of what we saw in chapter 5, John explains that the 144,000 have been purchased from among men. Uh, all believers, of course, have been purchased by God. The 144,000 were purchased for a special purpose. Uh, they're redeemed as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. In the Old Testament, the first fruits, the first part of a crop to be harvested, were offered to God to be used in His service. And so, there's two different ways in the Old Testament uh, that this concept is used of first fruits. One is uh, the best; it's to, it has to do with quality. Give God the very best off the off the top. And the second way it's used is it's the first offering of many to come. Um, in the Old Testament, actually, two thirds of the references are about quality. 
Only one third of the references are, are about this is the first one and then others to come. Uh, it seems pretty clear, I think, from all that we see here in this passage that it's talking about the idea of quality. These are special people set aside. Uh, that's what the, the meaning of first fruits here. Uh, like the first fruits offering, they will be set apart for divine service. As previously noted, the 144,000 does not symbolize all the tribulation saints, but designates a special group of Jewish evangelists. So the purpose of their lives will be to serve the Lord by proclaiming the gospel to the lost, perishing, Christ-rejecting world. Um, so, um, they, uh, they will not propagate Satan's lies. So this is another contrast. So we have the false prophet speaking Satan's lies, and now we have the 144,000 who speaks God's truth, and no lie is found in their mouth. Uh, they will be like those whom Zephaniah wrote. So Zephaniah chapter 3 says, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong and tell no lies, nor will a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. And so, like this passage... Um, these 144,000 will be like that. Uh, the unbelieving world, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, will, will be consumed with false wonders and all the deceptions of wickedness and a deluding influence and will believe what is false. That's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2. But the 144,000 will accurately proclaim the word of God. Because they trust in God's power and lead lives characterized by purity, loyalty, and purpose, the 144,000 are described here as blameless. That does not, of course, mean that they will be sinless. Um, we see Job described as blameless. That doesn't mean he was sinless. We see similar descriptions in 1 Kings chapter 8, Psalm 143, many places in the Old Testament um, that um, believers are described as blameless when they're living a pure and holy life. Um, it means that they're sanctified. Uh, they will be above reproach, leading godly lives before all who see them. So above reproach is one of the, uh, the characteristics required of an elder. Does that mean an elder is without sin? No. Above reproach means that their life is characterized with godly character and godly purity. It does not mean sinlessness. And this also does not mean sinlessness as well. It's similar to the qualification for elders to be above reproach. Um, so that's the first half of what we're going to talk about today. The second half is about the angels. So, And I saw another angel flying amid heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. So John sees another angel. So what does that mean, another angel, as compared to what other angels? So angels appear in every chapter, from chapters 4 to chapters 12. Uh, the nearest antecedent to this reference is to Michael and his angels in chapter 12, verse 7. Um, the phrase could also point back to the trumpet angel, seventh trumpet angel in chapter 11. In any case, this is another angel, not one of the angels that have already been described previously. So this is another one. Uh, and he's selected for a special purpose. Uh, the angel dramatically is flying in the midheaven. Uh, the Greek word there, mesoranima, mesoranima, uh, yeah. Um, refers to the point in the sky where the sun reaches its meridian, apex, or high point at noon. That's what, the, uh, that's what that Greek word um, literally means. Uh, so a high point up in the sky. That's what John's describing here. From that point, the angel would be most visible to those on the earth. 
There he will also be beyond the reach of Antichrist, as well as Satan and his demon host. Remember that they have been restricted to the earth. They've been thrown down to the earth. And so here's the angel above where Satan and his demons can do anything about it. Uh, the battle in the heavenlies between the holy angels and the demons is done. We saw that in Revelation chapter 12. It's over and they're thrown down to heaven. So here's an angel flying in mid-heaven. Um, the, the world will be suffering the, the devastation from the seal and the trumpet judgments. And the unbelieving world will have heard the gospel preached by the 144,000, maybe uh, on social media and uh, YouTube, um, by the Jewish witness, evangelists and the two witnesses as well, as well as countless thousands of others saved under their ministries. But most of the earth's population will reject the gospel. And so the eternal gospel preached by the angel is the same one proclaimed throughout history. That's why it's the eternal gospel. It's the good news of forgiveness and eternal life. And as we mentioned before, this angel is not limited, of course, by human uh, language um, that, that he could not, that, that we, we can't assume um, that, he, that he's unable to speak all the languages in the world, including all the ones that have never had the gospel preached in them. <clears throat> Um, so here's this angel preaching in the sky. He declared to the people who are sinners facing eternal judgment in hell, but that God has provided atonement for sins through the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the eternal gospel. Um, and the, the, the message is addressed to those who live on the earth. That's a, the technical phrase that we've seen over and over again in Revelation to refer to unbelievers. Uh, so to those who live on the earth, all the unbelievers. Uh, and then it, it makes it clear that it's all, all of them to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And so there we have a specific reference to every tongue. So um, I think we, um, I think that settles it, that the angel will speak in every tongue. Um, and so um, as important as it is, uh, and it is important to do the translation work, um, the Lord is thorough. He's, he's thorough enough to send this angel after everything else, to speak in every tongue the eternal gospel. Um, now, would it be better for somebody to hear the eternal gospel before the nastiness of the tribulation comes? Yes, it would. And so, translation work should definitely go forward. Nobody would say, nobody should say to themselves, well, this angel is going to speak in all the languages, so I'm not going to bother to support a translation ministry. No, 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 no. Translation ministries are very important to do right, right now before the tribulation events. Yes, Larry. That's correct. He's not. That's right. He's not. All he's doing is proclaiming the eternal gospel. So he's proclaiming. And what is the eternal gospel? That men are dead in their sins, heading to hell. God has provided a way of redemption by faith in Christ's finished work on the cross. So he, he's proclaiming the eternal gospel, but he's not making disciples, planting churches, that sort of thing. Right? That's what, that's what Christ commanded his disciples to do. And so that great commission um, uh, is a command, and inside that command, as Larry points out, is, is to make disciples and to teach them to obey, observe or obey all that I have commanded you. And so what, what is included in Christ when he, Christ says that? All that I have commanded you. What is he just then commanding them to do? Make disciples. And so part of what uh, the Great Commission 
commands them to do is make disciples and command them to do all that Christ has commanded, which includes make disciples. So we're commanded to make disciple makers is what we're commanded to do, to make disciple makers. And so Christ commanded the original apostles to do that, and they taught a next generation to do that, and they taught a next generation to do that, all the way down to you and I. And now it's our turn. And that's the way it is for every generation of believers in Christ, from the original disciples all the way to today, we're commanded to make disciples, teach people, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded, which includes the Great Commission. So we're commanded to teach them the Great Commission as part of all that Christ commanded his disciples. Um, and so that's how it works. That's how the multiplication of uh, disciples works. Yes. Uh, continuing along, uh, every tribe and tongue and nation and language, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs and water. So the angel's calling out in a loud voice to unregenerate people everywhere allows him to be heard and the urgency of his message. And his message is simple. Fear God and give him glory. Uh, call the people of the world to change their allegiance from the beast to the lamb. Uh, he urged them uh, to no longer fear, reverence, and worship Satan and the Antichrist, but to instead to fear, reverence, and honor God by turning to his son. So, um, as the ruler of the universe and the creator of the universe, God alone is worthy of worship. Uh, the Bible's clear about that over and over again. Uh, unbelievers will be called to fear and glorify God immediately because the hour of His judgment has come. And so it's urgent. Opportunity is fading. Uh, the bold judgments are coming. That's what this angel is saying here. He gives this reason, this final reason for turning from Antichrist to God that worship Him who made uh, the universe. Uh, the created universe offers proof of God's existence and provides grounds for worshiping. Psalm 119, the heavens declare the glories of God, and also Isaiah 40. Um, and because God reveals himself in his creation, men are without excuse for not acknowledging him. That's what we see in Romans chapter 1, uh, 118 to 20. Um, yeah, so when Paul evangelized Jews, he simply started from Old Testament Scripture. When he, he would go, The first place he would go when he went to a new place on his missionary journeys was the synagogue. He would start with the Old Testament Scriptures. But when he evangelized pagans, whether simple common people in Acts 14 or sophisticated philosophers in Acts 17, he proclaimed that the true and living God must be worshipped because he is the Creator. That's where he started with pagans. With Jews, he started with Old Testament Scripture because they had that. They had that... Um, uh, that background. Uh, with, with pagans, he started with creation. Um, and then there's another angel, a second one. Um, yes. Yeah, so this is a, a, a controversy that's been uh, that's argued back and forth all across uh, uh, the centuries. As some say no, some say yes. Uh, it would seem, from the fact that this angel is making the proclamation, why, why would he... Why would God bother to do this if there's no possible chance for anybody that hears him to repent? Um, uh, so because of that, John MacArthur in his commentary says, yes, they still have an opportunity to repent. Others say no, and they really jump on MacArthur when he says that, uh, to say no, if you receive the mark of the beast, it's too late. Um, uh, I, I don't know. 
I mean, it's, there's not a, it's not, the scripture doesn't say for certain. It just seems to me that it would be a real waste of time for the angel to fly around and proclaim this if it's already too late. Uh, there, there's a couple of possi- possibilities. One is that not everybody complied with this thing to get the mark of the beast, even among unbelievers. That's a possibility. And so that there's unmarked people among unbelievers that can still be saved. That's one possibility. Yes. Yeah, so that, that does leave, a, leave the possibility open, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, we'll get to the Millennial Kingdom in a, in a, in a little while. Um, there will be people born during the Millennial Kingdom uh, who obviously, even though their parents will be followers of Christ, will not be followers of Christ. And enough of them to, be, to have a big battle at the end. Uh, Armageddon. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, but remember that this, um, th- there's, no, there's no specific time stamp on the, in, these, uh, in many of these visions in 12 to 14. But it does say that those who receive the mark will, be, um, uh, will receive the, the, um, uh, the wrath of God. Uh, it does say that. And, and so people that jump on MacArthur, that's the verse they always go to. They say, look, see, everybody who gets the, the mark gets the wrath. Yeah, so there's controversy. Uh, so he sees a, another angel, second one, who followed the first angel. So he's really clear that this is another angel. Um, it's a second one. Uh, it doesn't, he doesn't preach the good news of the gospel, but pronounces the bad news of judgment. Um, second, um, the second angel, of course, he preaches judgment uh, as, as if it's, it seems like not many people respond to the first angel. But he says a specific thing, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Uh, repetition, uh, double repetition, the finality and certainty of the judgment of Babylon. Um, and so it's another one of these instances where uh, it's... It's described in the past tense, something in the future described in the past tense. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, that's past tense, even though this is talking about future events. Um, That's a special Greek tense, that that something in the future is so certain that you can talk about it as if it had already happened. Um, And that's talking about the Antichrist mighty empire, the mightiest empire ever in history. Um, So uh, Babylon in this passage refers not just to the city, but to Antichrist's worldwide political, economic, and religious empire. Uh, The history of Babylon is one of uh, evil and rebellion all the way from the beginning. It was founded by Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10. He was a proud, powerful God-rejecting ruler. Uh, uh, Babel, which is the the original site of Babylon, was the site of the Tower of Babel uh, in Genesis chapter 11. They constructed a ziggurat there, uh, which uh, was a center We've found ziggurats all around the world, and they're always uh, the ones that we can find any information about are always tied to idolatrous worship. Um, and so that's the image of Babylon that we have. So humanity was united in idolatrous false religion at Babel, so it will be again united in the end times under the aegis of the final Babylon, so history will thus come full circle. So the final Babylon, personified by a harlot, we'll see more about that in Genesis chapter 17, is described as she who has made the, all the nations drink of the wine of the passions of her immorality. And so the world will be intoxicated, deceived, and seduced by the Babylonian false religion headed by Antichrist. Thumas, 
Passion describes strong, consuming lusts and desires. It's a very strong word in the Greek. Uh, as a result of their passion, sinners will engage in an or orgy of rebellion, idolatry, and hatred of God. Uh, although uh, sexual sin will be rampant, as we've seen, the, this word immorality here uh, is uh, most likely referring to spiritual prostitution to Antichrist's false religion, the worship of Antichrist being the absolute worst sin that the people are committing here at the end unfaithfulness to God as the true object of all worship. Um, and so the nations of the world will continue on this, their course of spiritual defection from God and end up drinking the wine of God's wrath, we see in verse 10. Um, and the third angel is going to reveal that this uh, proves disastrous. And we'll see uh, much more in the, the details of this judgment in chapters 16, 17, and 18. Uh, then we get a third angel. Um, and he says with a loud voice, um, he, he also warns with a loud voice. Um, and so he's talking about the passing of judgment uh, because they reject what they know to be true. That is why everyone sentenced to hell will be without excuse, as we see in Romans chapter 1. Uh, the third angel's warning um, is addressed to anyone who worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Uh, so in Revelation 13, we saw that everyone who will be required under pain of death to worship the beast in his image uh, and as a sign of loyalty to Antichrist in order to function in the economy, everyone has to have a mark on his forehead or on his hand. Um, and so it will seem to these deceived Antichrist followers that that mark is the is the is the right way to go. It's the, they've chosen the winning side. But this angel is warning that that's a terrible mistake. Um, those who drank the wine of the harlot of Babylon also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Um, and so the, to drink the wine of God's wrath is to experience his wrath. Uh, so the full fury of God's wrath has been so long restrained, it's now going to be unleashed. Um, and it is the settled, deliberate response of a righteous God against all sinners. Uh, John describes the reality of this by calling it the, uh, uh, that his wrath will be mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And that's a reference to the practice at the time of diluting wine with water. Uh, Paul is saying, uh, John is saying that this is totally undiluted, not mixed with anything else. Just God's wrath, not mixed with any mercy. Uh, a terrible thing to contemplate. So this is the horrifying fate that awaits the persons who drink the wine of the wrath of God, to be tormented with fire and brimstone. Uh, Bazanitso is the uh, Greek word there, to be tormented. It speaks of ceaseless infliction of unbearable pain. So that Greek word means unbearable pain for even one second. It's totally unbearable for one second, but it's ceaselessly inflicted. Uh, so unending, totally unbearable pain. So if you can imagine that, pain that would be unbearable to, to have even for a second, going on and on and on and on and on, is what's described here in that Greek word, tormented, uh, basenitso. Uh, uh, Jesus uses the noun form of that verb in Luke 16 to describe the agony of the rich man in Hades. Um, and so those who have to drink this cup of his wrath, uh, his anger, um, uh, will enjoy no moments of rest throughout eternity. 
Um, and so um, I just want to finish with um, this idea. Let me skip forward here. Uh, let me skip to the skip to the end here. Um, this is the final point. Isaiah, Daniel, and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul affirmed that hell is eternal. Jesus taught with great clarity that hell is eternal. You will sometimes run into even Christians who struggle with the idea that a, a good and loving and just God would torment people forever and ever and ever. But Jesus taught that so clearly, uh, especially in Matthew chapter 25 when he talks about the eternal life and eternal judgment in the same sentence using the same Greek word, eternal, eternal. And so if hell is not eternal, then neither is your eternal life eternal, uh, according to Jesus. All right, uh, I'm, I apologize. I ran us uh, way over time. Uh, let me close this in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths that we can, we can learn from your word. We ask through your Holy Spirit that you would cause us to uh, understand uh, this word and also to apply it to our lives, especially the idea that uh, all these terrible things are coming for unbelievers. And as believers who know this, uh, we should really be motivated to reach out to unbelievers to, uh, to, to give them the gospel so that they can avoid going through this terrible time. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have in just a minute to worship you as the body of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.